Thank you. All right, well, let's open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for this morning and grateful for just an opportunity to be with your people um, in your house and thinking about eternal things, uh, particularly this time of the year as we <clears throat> commemorate the birth of your son, Jesus, into our world. It's very easy, Lord, in a hectic um, sort of time frame that we're in to lose sight of the reason for the season. So I pray that you'll be with us today, uh, this week, and you'd help us stay focused on what really, really counts and really matters, <clears throat> that we're on the winning side of history because your son was born into our world 2,000 years ago, miraculously. I do pray that you be with us during Sunday school and the main service that follows. I pray that the Spirit's ministry of illumination would be alive and well today. And in preparation for that ministry, Lord, we're going to just take a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you, not to restore position, but to restore broken fellowship if need be. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and the <coughs> comprehensiveness of your provision for us. So be with us now, Lord, as we study. Um, help your name be lifted up and glorified in all of the different classes and groups that are meeting today at Sugarland Bible Church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Well, let's take our Bible and open them to our our Bibles and open them to Second Thessalonians two verses three and four. Actually, verse four. Continuing our verse-by-verse uh, -verse study through Second Thessalonians. As you know, Paul the Apostle on his second missionary journey uh, planted the church there in Thessalonica. That's the circle up north. And then uh, within six months to a year, I would think, was pushed out of Thessalonica by the unbelieving Jews and went down south to Corinth. And so at Corinth, within six months to a year of him leaving, they asked him some questions. The questions basically related to eschatology, the study of the end, they wanted to know, what about our deceased loved ones in Christ? Are they going to participate in the rapture? Paul answers that in 1 Thessalonians. And then that leads to another question that they had, which he'll answer in 2 Thessalonians. 
The second question they had really relates to a forged letter that they had received in Paul's absence. So there in verse 2, it says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord or the coming tribulation period has come. So he had taught them that they would escape the day of the Lord or the tribulation period because they are in the church age and the next event on the horizon for them would be the rapture of the church, which precedes the tribulation. And then all of a sudden they got this forged letter saying, no, you actually missed the rapture and you're in the tribulation. So they were very shaken by this. So what Paul does in this particular paragraph is he says you're not in the tribulation period because the tribulation period will be characterized by five things that you are not currently seeing. So only when someone sees these five things can they say we're in the tribulation period. So this is actually really good um, teaching for us because there's a lot of eschatological confusion on the landscape. Have you guys noticed that? And any little problem or tremor in the world, you know, you'll get a flurry of emails or people, you know, coming onto your social media page in a state of panic and they want to know, are we in the tribulation period? So you could tell them exactly what Paul told the Thessalonians. You're not in the tribulation period because you don't see these five things. So what are those five things? He develops a list. Number one, you haven't seen the departure. And as we were going through that particular verse, actually not even that verse, the first half of the verse, I tried to make the case that the departure is a synonym for the rapture. And we did um, nine lessons on that. Do you guys think nine lessons was enough on that? Or Okay, just want to make sure we got it down. The second thing he says is following the departure will be the advent of the lawless one or the Antichrist. So the Antichrist is not going to show up until the departure occurs first. So we made our way through verse 3 as he was describing the Antichrist. And last week we made it through half of verse 4. So I'm hoping, Lord willing, to do verse 4 and verse 5 today. When this Antichrist shows up, subsequent to the departure of the church via the rapture, what is he going to do? Well, verse 4 tells us who, a reference to the Antichrist, will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. We talked about that last time, and here's the part we left off uh, because we ran out of time. So that he takes his seat in the temple. Uh, The Greek word for temple there is naos. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself as God. So Paul is referencing something here that 
the prophet Daniel, I think, probably explained for the very first time 600 years earlier. Daniel gave sort of a a snapshot, if you will, of the seven-year tribulation period. It's in Daniel 9.27. And it says he, that's the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many. Now, there's a lot of people today saying the many is a reference to, you know, a bunch of nations. And I don't think that's accurate. I think the many is a reference to Israel. And you can just jot down Daniel 11, verse 33. Daniel, in the same book, identifies the many as Israel. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's a week of years, seven years. But in the middle of the week, exactly 42 months in, exactly three and a half years in, exactly 1,260 days in, the Antichrist is going to do something. And this is what Paul is referring to there in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 4. This is the event that he is saying you haven't seen yet to the Thessalonians. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So something is going to happen exactly three and a half years into the tribulation period, according to Daniel, called the abomination of desolation which will take place in the Jewish temple. Um, Daniel 9.27, therefore, gives us more than any other passage an overview of the tribulation period. It tells us it's going to last seven years. It tells us what's going to start it, the peace treaty between the Antichrist and the many, unbelieving Israel. He tells us what's going to happen at the end of this period, the desolator will be overthrown. That's a reference to the return of Jesus. And then Daniel explains exactly what's going to happen at the midpoint. This this thing that Paul is talking about in verse 4, the abomination of desolation, the desecration of the Jewish temple. So I know what you guys are thinking. This is the weirdest, I mean... Why would any normal pastor talk about something like this at Christmas time? You know, what's the matter with you? Um, the truth of the matter, though, is this, and I'm really, because I really don't plan the calendar very well. I just teach the next verse. Uh, I just find it amazing that the Lord would put us in this verse at Christmas time, because Christmas time overlaps with Hanukkah which is a prefigurement of this prophecy. So one of the things I had asked you to do by way of homework is how does Hanukkah, and we just entered into that time period, Jewish people celebrating Hanukkah, sometimes called Feast of Lights, Feast of Dedication, happens around Christmas time. Uh, how does it prefigure this prophecy that I'm speaking of? And the answer is Daniel 11.31.
Daniel 11.31, a couple of chapters later, Daniel makes another prophecy or prediction. This one, not about the things yet future, the seven-year tribulation period, but this one relative to something that would happen 400 years later after Daniel received this prophecy from the Lord. Actually, it was the Lord delivering it through Gabriel to Daniel while Daniel was in Babylon. And so this is one of the reasons that you have to take Daniel's prophecies very seriously because he was given prophecies, some of which have already happened from our perspective, from our time frame, some of them yet future. And what you'll discover in the book of Daniel is all of his short-term prophecies came to pass with exact precision. Daniel 11.31 already happened. If Daniel 11.31 already happened with accuracy, then I can trust Daniel 9.27, which hasn't happened yet, to be fulfilled with the same degree of accuracy and precision. So Daniel 11.31 defines the abomination of desolation for us, which is what the Antichrist is going to do midway through the tribulation period. And it relates to a struggle that the Jewish people would have 400 years after Daniel received and wrote Daniel 11.31. So if you want to understand Daniel 9.27, you have to read Daniel 11.31. If you want to understand 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, you have to understand Daniel 9.27. But wait a minute. If you want to understand Daniel 9.27, you have to understand Daniel 11.31. Daniel 11.31 leads you to Daniel 9.27, which takes you into 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. So what does Daniel 11 verse 31 say? I'm glad you asked. Daniel predicted forces from him will arise and desecrate the sanctuary and the fortress and do away with regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Now, just to kind of give you the full history of what happened in Daniel 11.31, there was a man named Alexander the Great about, I don't know, three, 330 years, something like that, before the time of Christ. Alexander the Great is also the subject of Daniel's prophecies in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11. Daniel predicted that Alexander the Great would come upon the scene and would conquer the known world. Alexander the Great is the one that brought in the Greek language. He was a one-worlder, a globalist. He wanted to create a monotheistic, uh, Hellenistic culture. And Daniel predicted that he would come, he would die, he would have no descendants, and his empire would be broken off amongst four non-natural descendants who would, who were his four generals. So here's the prophecy about Alexander the Great. It's in Daniel 8, verses 5 through 8. Daniel writes, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west 
over the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a prominent horn between his eyes. The goat is Greece. And uh, we've done uh, multiple sermons, I think 58 sermons through the book of Daniel. So if you want to understand why Greece is the goat and why the little horn is Alexander the Great, I recommend those sermons to you. But this goat is moving very fast. His feet are not touching the ground, and it's a prediction about how fast Alexander would take over the world of his day. And this little horn protruding from the goat is Alexander the Great in Daniel's prophecies. It's just Daniel is seeing it before it happens because God told him it would happen ahead of time. Daniel 8, verse 6, he came to the ram. Now, the ram is Persia, the existing empire prior to Greece, that had two horns, and the Persians were divided amongst the Medes and the Persians. So that's what the two horns represent, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath, and I saw him come up beside the ram and he was enraged at him and he struck the ram smashed the two horns the ram had no strength to withstand him so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one to rescue him from his power so it's Greece under Alexander the Great conquering the Medo-Persian Empire that's what it's a prophecy about Then the male goat, goat, that's Greece, made himself exceedingly great. But once he became powerful, the large horn, Alexander the Great, was broken. And in its place, four prominent horns came up towards the four winds of heaven. So Alexander the Great was one of the most um, skillful world leaders the world has ever seen. He is was the kind of person that could conquer the known world, but he could not conquer his own passions. And so he, the accounts differ, but he died of some kind of sexually transmitted disease. Some say he died of, um, you know, alcoholism, that kind of thing. And when he died, and he died very young, around age 30, he had no descendants, but he had four generals. And his empire was divided up amongst these four generals. And you can see what different parts of the Alexandrian empire each general got. There was Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Now the rest of those generals and their territories are going to drop off the scene in terms of prophecy And the whole emphasis is on Seleucus because from Seleucus came the Seleucid dynasty. And the reason that's a big deal is because you see where Seleucus's empire went into. It went into the land of Israel. And from the Seleucid dynasty is going to arise a very, very bad man named Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who will desecrate the Jewish temple in the intertestamental time period. So 
Antiochus IV coming from the Seleucid dynasty is a prefigurement of the coming Antichrist. Um, what Seleucus did, desecrating the temple, Daniel predicts it, Daniel 11.31, is exactly what the future Antichrist will do. So we don't have to guess as to what this abomination of desolation is. Daniel has the same prophecy in Daniel 11, 3 and 4. It says, a mighty king will arise. This is Alexander the Great. He will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom will be broken and parceled out towards the four points of the compass. That's the same prophecy about the early death of Alexander the Great. The four points of the compass would represent the different territories each of his generals received. Though not to his own descendants. See that prophecy there? I'm in Daniel 11 verse 4. Though not to his own descendants. In other words, Daniel's prophecies indicate that Alexander would have no descendants natural descendants when he died so his empire had to be divided up amongst his four generals daniel predicted that centuries four centuries well maybe not quite four centuries but a few centuries before it happened nor according to his own authority which he wielded for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides him So the key general to to watch is Seleucus, because from Seleucus is going to come the Seleucid dynasty. From the Seleucid dynasty is going to come Antiochus IV. That Daniel's prophecies will start to focus in on like a laser beam. Because what Antiochus IV did to the Jewish people in the intertestamental period is a prefigurement of what the future Antichrist will do. So here are the members of the Seleucid dynasty. And you'll notice the last guy on the chain is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. His name means God manifest. I would like to work for someone whose name means God manifest. I mean, a slight ego problem. Uh, he ruled from 175 to 163 BC. And he's the guy that Daniel says, watch carefully, because what he did is a prefigurement of what will be done. Daniel 11.31 therefore unlocks Daniel 9.27, which unlocks 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. So what did Antiochus IV actually do? Well, he brought a horrific wave of persecution against the Jewish people. In the time period that he lived, this probably started about 164, 165, right in there. He told the Jewish people, you can't uh, have your prayer books anymore. You can't have your scriptures anymore. He outlawed them. He told them you can't practice circumcision anymore when their scriptures told them to practice circumcision. Because he, like his uh, distant forerunner, Alexander, was trying to create the New World Order. Interesting thing about the New World Order is it's really not new. People have been trying to do this for a long time. 
a monolithic Greek culture. That's what's called Hellenization. And standing right in the way is the Jewish people that had their own culture (laughs) and their own religion. And so what Antiochus IV did is he went into the functioning Jewish temple, which had been rebuilt by the returnees from the captivity in Babylon. And he set up a pagan image in the temple, uh, an image of Zeus. And there was a man named Judas Maccabeus, one of the heroes of Judaism, that wouldn't have it. And he led what is called the Maccabean Revolt, where he, with his guerrilla warfare, basically, and minority of fighters, did something that shouldn't have happened from the human perspective. Uh, he overthrew the Seleucid dynasty, and he liberated the temple from Seleucid rule. And this happened around December the 25th, 164 BC. The temple is liberated and rededicated. Now, the Bible does not record the history of how this happened. It just gives you the predictions of how it would happen. But if you wanted to read the history, you'd have to read the books of First and Second Maccabees, named after Judas Maccabeus, the leader of this revolt. His name was also the Hammer. He's <laughs> a tough guy. And so First and Second Maccabees, you know, I, I mean, when you come to Sugarland Bible Church, you won't hear, okay, open up to First Maccabees, because those are books that we don't, as Protestants, accept as inspired. But they contain history in it that's valid. It's like reading Josephus. Josephus is not an inspired writer, but you can use Josephus in a way to validate the scripture. How's the sound working, by the way? I kind of feel like my voice is going in and out. We doing okay? Do I need to adjust anything? All right, I'm just going to keep talking. And to um, liberate and then rededicate the temple, according to Jewish tradition, it required the menorah. And there's a picture of the menorah there. The menorah basically had to burn for eight days. And we have a problem because there was only enough oil for the menorah to burn one day. But according to the Maccabean books, um, essentially what happened is the menorah miraculously burned eight days when there was only oil for one day. So that's how the Lord, you know, ended up doing a miracle. And this is the miracle of the lamp oil. What do we need? Yeah. Okay. All right. Can you guys hear me here? All right. So from all of this that we're, we're speaking of, a special holiday came out of it. And who knows the name of that holiday? Hanukkah. 
sometimes called Feast of Dedication, Feast of Lights. And one of the most beautiful things you can see is to be in Jerusalem when they're actually celebrating the Feast of Lights because all of Jerusalem is lit up with lights and candles, people, you know, in Jerusalem carrying candles. And so when our Jewish friends are celebrating Hanukkah, this is essentially what, what it's about. They're celebrating what God did through the Maccabean revolt, allowing the temple to re-temp- the temple area to be recaptured and rededicated through the miracle of the menorah, which was only supposed to burn one day, but miraculously burned eight days. And interestingly enough, we celebrate Christmas around the same time as this particular uh, holiday. So if you look at John chapter 10, verses 22 through 24, you'll see that Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate this particular holiday. Even though this holiday is not originally part of the seven feast days for Israel, this one was added to the calendar. And you shouldn't think that it's somehow less than in comparison to the other Jewish feast days given in the Mosaic Law, because Jesus himself made a special trip to Jerusalem to celebrate this. And there's a record of it in John 10, 22 through 24. It says, when the festival of dedication, that's Hanukkah, that's the Feast of Lights. That's what we're talking about right here. This is what Daniel saw 400 years in advance related to Antiochus IV. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter because this is typically celebrated in our month of December. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking on Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. So Jesus would disclose different aspects of who he was during these different feast days. And he made certain disclosures in John 10 in Jerusalem as he was celebrating Hanukkah. Because after all, at the end of the day, Jesus was Jewish. Amen? So that's where this whole Hanukkah festival comes about. Now here are the original feasts that God gave to Moses back at Sinai. There's Passover. The first four, by the way, are spring feasts. There's Passover, celebrating their release or redemption from Egypt. Then would come unleavened unleavened bread, celebrating their separation from Egypt because they were told not to bring leavened bread because it takes time for leavened bread to rise when cooking it, and you're not going to have enough time for that because you got to get out of Egypt tonight. So unleavened bread celebrates their separation from Egypt, 
And then would come first fruits where the initial crop came in in the land of Israel. And that guaranteed the remainder of the crop that would come. So there's a special holiday called first fruits for that. And then there's Pentecost, which celebrates the full harvest coming in. And then the spring feasts stop, and there's a large gap of time before the three fall feasts kick in. The first fall feast is trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, celebrating the Jewish New Year. Then there's atonement, where they were to take, um, well, the two goats into the Holy of Holies, one of those goats, their, their, their blood was, its blood was shed. The other goat was released into the wilderness. And the blood from the shed goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat by the high priest, who's the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies. One day a year called Yom, day of what? Kippur, covering. And because they did that, God said, I'm going to not hold the nation accountable this year for its sins. Its note of reckoning was postponed. The note of uh, indebtedness to him was postponed. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, he rendered Yom Kippur null and void because he is the final act in the sense that his death covered all sins, right? past, present, and future. But that's spelled out in Leviticus 16. And then they had another feast called the Feast of Booths. Sometimes in Hebrew, it's or the Hebrew name for it is Sukkot. And that was a feast where they were celebrating how God looked after them during the wilderness wanderings. And God always provided for them with manna, water, you know, their shoes would not wear out, etc., And so they were a people without a land for 40 years, and God always gave them provision on a daily basis. And so they have a special feast for that called uh, the Feast of Booths, where they're actually inside of booths, you know, commemorating covering, that God covered them from lots of temporal disasters during that time period. And so those feasts are all laid out in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23. I mean, Moses said, here's the feast you're to celebrate. And we believe that each of these feasts is a prefigurement in some way of Jesus. The spring feasts were fulfilled at his first coming. Then there's a long gap. There's a long gap between the spring and the fall. Now, who's living in that gap? That's us. We're living in a time period where these feasts aren't being fulfilled. But one of these days, the age of the church will be over, the gap will be finished, and then the Lord is going to fulfill the three remaining fall feasts, not in Christ's first coming, but in his second coming. So Passover points to Jesus. He's the Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Unleavened bread points to Jesus because he is the bread of life. First fruits points to his resurrection from the dead because his resurrection from the dead is called first fruits. 
And then the uh, full harvest points to the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost because that transpired on that particular feast day. Then there's a gap of time. Israel is in unbelief. God is currently working through the church. But one of these days, the church age will be over. God will translate us to heaven. And then he'll get down to business and fulfill in Christ's second coming the remaining fall feasts. In Rosh Hashanah, you'll find the fulfillment of Matthew 24, verse 31, where there will be a trumpet. Now, that's not the rapture trumpet. That's the trumpet for Israel, where they are not vertically gathered, but horizontally gathered, where they have been scattered by the Antichrist, and now they're coming back in faith. On the on atonement, you're going to see the conversion of Israel. That's the that's described in Zechariah 12 verse 10. And once Israel is saved, the millennial kingdom will start a thousand years. And there's a reference to people going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom in Zechariah 14:16 through 18. So Passover is Jesus, the Passover lamb. Unleavened bread is Jesus, the bread of life. First fruits is the resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost is the Holy Spirit coming. And then you have this gap of time and you have the three remaining fall feasts after the church age is over. Trumpets will be fulfilled at the end of the tribulation period where Israel is gathered in faith. Zechariah 12 verse 10 will be fulfilled on the day of atonement when Israel is converted and then booths will be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom. So here's where each of these feasts fit on the Jewish calendar. Kind of that outer ring are the the Jewish months and you can see where they correlate with our normal Gentile calendar months. But you see the right out of the gate, um, the first spring feasts, and then you see this gap of time. And then following that gap of time, that gap of time is the church age, following that gap of time will be the fulfillment of the remaining three fall feasts related to Israel in the end times. And what you'll see on here is there's no reference to Hanukkah because Hanukkah is something that happens in the intertestamental period long before the time of Moses. And you also see no reference to here to something called Purim, which means lots, which essentially is another feast that was started to celebrate God's miraculous deliverance of the Jewish people from the diabolical Haman, as recorded in which book of the Bible? The book of Esther. Moses doesn't talk about Purim either because Purim is yet future, probably a thousand years yet future from the time Moses wrote the book of Leviticus. However, those two feasts were added to the calendar. 
So this calendar here gives you the fall feasts and it gives you the spring feasts and it also throws into the mix Hanukkah, which is what we're talking about here, and it also throws into the mix Purim. You'll notice when Hanukkah is celebrated in the month of Keslev, which overlaps uh, our November and December. So Jewish people, as I speak, are celebrating Hanukkah right now. So all of that to say, what Antiochus Epiphanes did, the villain creating the need for Hanukkah, the deliverance of Israel from the uh, 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 Israel needing to be delivered under the Maccabean revolt and Hanukkah coming out of it, what Antiochus did to set the stage for what would be Hanukkah is a prefigurement of what the future Antichrist will do. Because Daniel 11.31 is a prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes. He will desecrate the temple. Daniel 9.27 applies that same language to the future Antichrist. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 is building on a framework where the Thessalonians apparently already understood these prophecies. So if you want to know what the future Antichrist will do, it's not that complicated. All you have to do is go back into history and study what Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes did to the Jewish people around 165 B.C. If you understand that, you'll understand everything the future Antichrist will do. This is why the Apostle John says, you know the Antichrist is coming, but already there have been many Antichrists in the world. The Antichrist has already shown up in the person of Antiochus IV Epiphanes in the form of a dress rehearsal. You understand the dress rehearsal, you'll understand the future. If you don't understand the dress rehearsal, you have no idea what's coming in the future. So as Solomon said, the wisest man that ever lived, other than Jesus, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says that which has been is that which will be. See that? And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. So history, according to the Bible, is cyclical. History moves in certain patterns. Everybody today is talking about the New World Order and the the World Economic Forum as if that's some new thing. I mean, Alexander the Great was trying all of that stuff around 300 B.C. Nimrod was building his, you know, New World Order at the Tower of Babel. Uh, what, what the Antichrist is going to do, yet future, has already been prefigured in the person of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Now, some people might be asking, why do I pronounce it Antiochus IV when I've heard other people call him Antiochus? Antiochus Epiphanes instead of Antiochus Epiphanes. Why do you pronounce it your way when other people pronounce it a different way? Well, as my professor Harold Honer told us, 
The emphasis is determined by where you put the syllable. So you're going to hear it pronounced different ways. I don't know if there's a correct way to pronounce it. But I call him Antiochus IV Epiphanes. So Antiochus IV Epiphanes is going to desecrate the Jewish temple. Daniel 9.27 says the Antichrist is going to desecrate the Jewish temple. Yeah, but I don't know, I don't know what it means, this desecration of the temple. What does that even mean? Well, you know what it means because it's already happened. Because Daniel 11.31 uses this identical language and aims it at Antiochus IV. If you understand what Antiochus IV did, you can understand what the future Antichrist will do midway through the tribulation. Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 is, you haven't seen any of this stuff happening. So why would you think that you are in the tribulation period? This stuff, although it's prefigured in history, is yet future. So exactly in the middle of the coming seven-year tribulation period, Antiochus IV is going to desecrate the Jewish temple, meaning he will go into the Jewish temple, just like Antiochus went into the second temple. Antiochus IV will go into the third temple. He will persecute the Jewish people. He will outlaw the use of their prayer books, Uh, outlaw the use of Talmud, he will ban circumcision, he will launch a horrific wave of persecution against the Jewish people, and just like Antiochus IV set up an image of Zeus in the temple, the future Antichrist will set up an image of himself in the temple, because he is worshipped above and beyond every god. Not even Antiochus did that. Antiochus put Zeus in the temple. Antiochus, uh, Antichrist will put himself in the temple. And it's an image that apparently has the ability to talk and speak. And there's a reference to it in Revelation 13, verse 15. And when this happens, it will take the Jewish heart and break it. And this is God's design. Because some of the best theology I've ever learned was from the fellow that led me to Jesus. He said, God knocks us down so that we look up. That's how God works. I mean, I I would venture to say he's worked that way in all of your lives. And God is going to work that way for a nation. His nation, the elect nation, He is going to knock them down so that they look up. And what is going to knock them down is them believing that the Antichrist is their Messiah. They're going to falsely trust in him for three and a half years. And what is going to get their attention is watching him break his word three and a half years into the seven-year tribulation period and replicating almost to a T, what one of their great villains in their history that they all know about, because they celebrate Hanukkah every year, what one of their great villains in history already did to them. 
the desecration of the temple. And as that happens, their hearts are broken and they realize that this Antichrist is not our guy. He's not our Messiah. He just betrayed us. In fact, what he has done is worse than what Antiochus IV did to us. And it's at that point that their hearts are open to the fact that maybe our Messiah came 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. And through this process, you're going to see the conversion of a nation. God knocks us down so that we look up. Daniel 12, verse 7, it says, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and he swore by him who lives forever that it will be for a time, times and a half a time. Now that's the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. As soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people. Who was the holy people? Israel. Not the church. Because we don't know anything about the church in Daniel 9.27. Because Jesus would come along and said, I will build my church. So just because you see the words holy people, don't throw the church into that. The church doesn't even exist at the time this prophecy was made. In fact, prior to the church's existence, God's people were commonly called saints. Psalm 50 verse 5. Psalm 149 verse 1. You see the word saints in the Bible? You gotta figure out real fast which saints is being referenced. Because we have Old Testament saints, church age saints, and tribulation saints. So just seeing the word saints does not give anybody permission to put the church into the tribulation period any more than the word saints gives permission for people to put the church in the Old Testament when Jesus said, I will build my church. The saints or the holy people is God's elect nation, the nation of Israel, that God is bringing to faith. Why is God working so hard to bring them to faith? Because he made a covenant with them. In which book of the Bible? Hint, we're studying it right now in the main service. Genesis. So if God is not going to bring his elect nation to faith, then he can't keep the words that he made, the covenant that he made in Genesis. It's going to be sort of an ugly process, this breaking of the Jewish people. Because Zechariah 13, 8 and 9 says it will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but a third will be left in it. I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They, that's Israel, will call upon my name. Why why would they call upon his name? Because they've just been ripped off by the guy they thought was their Messiah who just replicated what one of their villains in history did to them, but worse. So now they're getting it right. They're calling out to the Lord Jesus Christ through this process because God knocks us down so that we look up. They will call upon my name. And I will answer them. Look at that. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. It's a process and it's not going to be pretty. Because it's going to involve two thirds of the Jewish nation. 
if I'm understanding this fraction right. Math was never my greatest forte. But as you get into the Bible, you see it deals with math. And Sandra McGowan is saying, Amen. Because if you talk to her about math, she'll say, Math is obviously designed by God. And you'll have to get her explanation for that, not mine. But two-thirds of the Jewish nation is broken off in unbelief. The, the Jewish nation, what do they say today? Never again. And they're saying that relative to Hitler, who killed a third. They say that will never happen to us again. And Zechariah says, not only is it going to happen to you again, it's going to be worse. Because two-thirds is bigger than one-third. Can I get an amen to that? So we talk about this process of their conversion, and I don't mean to kind of pass over it as if it's going to be some easy thing. It's not going to be easy. But the end product will be a remaining third that will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is going to precipitate this conversion is this event called the desecration of the temple. That is a heartbreaker. I mean, we know Israel has been regathered in unbelief. We see that happening. But how is God going to take an unbelieving nation and make it a believing nation? Daniel 9.27 tells you how it's going to, he's going to do it. He's going to do it by allowing Daniel 11.31 to be repeated, but worse. Paul brings it up because he's telling these struggling Thessalonians who think they're in the day of the Lord, you're not in the day of the Lord because you haven't seen any of this. I will pour out, Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David, on the, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is emotional for them when they recognize this light of who Jesus is and what God has had to do to bring them to this point. And thus Paul in Romans 11, 25 and 26 says, For I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening... See, Israel's current state is not forever. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's us. Once God is finished with the us, the rapture happens, and he goes back to dealing with Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. You say, I thought only a third were saved. It's true. But when God says all, he's talking about the believing remnant. He's not talking about every single Jew on planet Earth. Because Zechariah is very clear that two-thirds will be cut off in unbelief. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. 
Notice the deliverer is not coming on Air Force One. It's coming from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And so when Paul says, verse 4, 2 Thessalonians 2, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God, this is what Paul is referring to. And you Thessalonians haven't seen this yet. Now, what's sort of interesting is when Paul said this, the temple was still functioning. Wouldn't be destroyed for another 19, 18 years by Titus of Rome. But that temple is long gone. So when Paul says he's going to set himself up in the temple, what temple is he talking about exactly? And there are, in Jewish history, four temples. Two past, two future. The first one was built by Solomon. He started to build that in 966 B.C., 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. That was the temple destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar just uh, prior to the Babylonian captivity. Then the Babylonian exiles came back from the captivity. The book of Ezra talks about it. They started to rebuild temple number 2, which was refurbished by Herod ultimately, John 2, verse 20, and that's the temple that was functioning when Jesus showed up. And the disciples were so proud of that temple. They would always say, hey, Jesus, have you seen how pretty this is? As if poor Jesus didn't know. And Jesus would say things like, this whole thing is going to be torn apart brick by brick, which is exactly what Titus of Rome did to it in A.D. 70. So when Paul writes these words, that temple, number two, hadn't been destroyed yet, and yet it was destined for destruction. And so the Jewish people for 2,000 years haven't had a temple. But the scripture is very clear that there will be this temple, number three, that the Antichrist will desecrate. You cannot desecrate a temple that doesn't exist. That particular temple, I believe, will be destroyed in the seventh bowl judgment, which describes the greatest earthquake in human history when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. But as we roll over into the millennial kingdom, it will be replaced by the glorious Millennial temple described in Ezekiel 40 through 48 that the Shekinah glory of God will re-enter. Just as the Shekinah glory of God entered the Solomonic temple, temple number one, and then left just prior to the Babylonian captivity, when we get to temple number four, the Solomonic glory will, in, uh, the Shekinah glory will enter temple number four and will stay there permanently. Jesus made reference to temple three. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation as spoken through the prophet 
Daniel standing in the holy place and your average person looks at that and they say, I have no idea what that means. And Jesus says, that's because you didn't go to Sugarland Bible Church. Because at Sugarland Bible Church, the pastor there taught a lesson on how Daniel 11.31 opens the understanding of Daniel 9.27, which opens the understanding of what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. So Jesus says, review those sermons. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. What's standing in the holy place? This this God-awful, God-forsaken image of the Antichrist that's spoken of in Revelation 13, verse 15. An image that's just as real as the Zeus that Antiochus IV put up in the intertestamental period. Let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee. This is the Jews now in the second half of the tribulation period. Then those who are in Judea. By the way, does that sound Jewish to you in Judea? He's talking to the Jews living in Jerusalem, and he's talking about how they're going to have to get out into uh, Petra or Jordan to be supernaturally protected by God because the beast is going to try to kill you. In fact, he's going to kill two-thirds of you. But this is the difficult process that will be in play during that time period leading to the conversion of Israel. Let those who are in Judea, they must flee to the mountains. Verse 20, does this sound Jewish to you? But pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on a Sabbath. So with temple number three, you'll notice that Daniel referenced it, Daniel 9.27. Jesus referenced it, Matthew 24.15. Paul, in our verse, is referencing it, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. And it's also referenced in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. Let me give you a few verses on this third temple. Just jot these down because it looks like we're out of time. It's predicted in Daniel 12.11. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, it's predicted in Mark 13, verse 14. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, that's the statue that will be inside of it. It's found in Revelation 11, verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations and they will tread it under the foot of the holy city for 42 months. And then finally it's referenced in Revelation 13, verse 15. And it was given, this is the statue that will be set up inside of it. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak. There's your artificial intelligence right there. And cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Why why a singular image? Because that's what Antiochus did. And Daniel applies the same abomination of desolation language that we know has been historically fulfilled in Antiochus IV. He applies it to the future Antichrist. 
So, question. Here's your homework. Ready? If the temple doesn't exist currently, then how is our world right now as I speak being set up for this temple coming back into existence so that these prophecies can be fulfilled? My goodness, is there anything in the news related to the coming of this temple? There's my wife and myself in front of the Temple Institute in one of our trips to Jerusalem. I call this the beauty and the beast picture. <laughs> well, you're the beauty. You don't, you don't have to exhale too much. I know it is. I like putting up pictures of when I'm a little thinner than I used to. Than I... But there's a whole, um, you go to Jerusalem, you go into the Temple Institute, and it's narrated from the perspective of unbelieving Jews. And they have a caricature, a miniature, a design, a menorah of what the whole thing's going to look like. So we'll get into that. Not next week, which is Christmas Eve, so we're not having Sunday school. Our normal service is going to go from 10.30 to 12. And then we're going to have our candle lighting service at 6 p.m. So we won't be having Sunday school as we normally have it next week. But when we come back in that final month of December, I'll be showing you how the world is being perfectly set up as I speak for the coming forth of Temple Number 3. So I hope you're excited. We're living in just some astronomical times. What has been will be again. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for the clarity that it gives to us. Help us to live these things out. Consider them carefully. Live them out this week. Help us to live with a sense of urgency, knowing that we're living on borrowed time. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, happy mini intermission.